Father, thank you that by your mercy and by your grace, you have given us uh, eyes to see you in the midst of, of what the world deems chaos, we know is control. And so, Father, we come this morning and we, as we just sang, claim our dependence upon you because you are powerful and mighty and sovereign over all, and we are low and powerless. But by your grace, we are strong in Jesus Christ. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Well, good morning. How is everyone doing? That's good. If, we're, uh, if you're visiting today, if you're newer to our church, we've been in the book of Ephesians for, I'm going to call it a year and a half, close enough. And um, we're, we're finishing up here, and it's working out perfectly with Pastor John coming. Uh, I was texting with him this week a little bit and checking in with him, and he goes, hey, I remember, you know, maybe a month or so ago, ago you, you prayed that maybe Ephesians would finish up right around the time that I'm coming. He said, looks like God is answering that prayer, and uh, I am thankful for that. And just thanks for being here this morning. You know, we are in a battle. We're in this conclusion of Ephesians, which is just a tremendous and great conclusion. And we're understanding that we need to have the armor of God. But we're in a spiritual battle where our enemy is not a visible enemy. But we're in a very real battle. Even though we do not see, it does not lessen the truth that this battle is real. Satan wants to take us down. Satan, our defeated enemy, wants to take as many others down as he can. He wants our joy robbed. And in verse 12 of Ephesians chapter 6, if you would turn there, it says this, that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. We are in a battle. We must be a people who are ready and prepared. We must be clothed for battle. Now, last week or last time, I told you that I don't pay, play paintball with the youth because I would lose baz- badly. I'd be the biggest guy out there. I'd be the slowest guy out there. I'd be the one in the worst shape out there, and I'd be the one peppered with paintballs, so I do not do it. And I told you that I do that, and I make sure I don't because all I do is wear shorts. I don't bring long pants to camp, so I just, I'm sorry, guys. I can't play. I'm in shorts, and I don't want welts all over my leg. And they get a little upset, but I'm pretty happy about the situation. And I want to tell you another activity that I did do in my youth. From the ages of 12 to 15, I was a catcher when I played baseball. And uh, catchers take a beating. If If you're a baseball fan at all, you know this. They get hit with foul balls, wild pitches, bad bounces, uh, violent collisions with base runners, and sometimes... uh, although they'll never really admit it, sometimes a fastball hits your left hand just so right, and it hurts. It hurts bad. I came across a portion of a poem from a gentleman named Harry Ellard, and the title is uh, The Reds of 69. It says this, We used no mattresses on our hands, no cage upon our face. We stood right up and caught the ball with courage and with grace. You see, catchers originally stood far back from the mound, and they would catch the pitch on a bounce when baseball first started. But then as the game evolved and as the game started uh, becoming faster, 
overhand pitching started to be allowed, the catcher saw an advantage of moving closer to home plate, to moving closer to the batter. And as that happened, the need for protection became necessary. Can you understand that? Early catchers who developed uh, equipment, they wore mad, who, who developed it, they wore masks, and when they wore pads, they were ridiculed by the crowd. Oftentimes they would wear it under their jersey so that they wouldn't maybe notice. But the crowd would go, look at that wimpy catcher wearing equipment to protect himself. That's how baseball started. Now, you see them in full armor, don't you? It's all modern equipment and, and high, high polymer plastic. A catcher wears armor, why? So that they can do their job correctly. So they can catch the, catch the pitch and frame it as a strike, even if it isn't. Good catchers are fearless. They don't worry about the fastballs coming and the foul tips coming. They just do their job because they stand there or crouch there protected. But they still take a beating. It's interesting that Harold Rule is a catcher for the Washington Nationals. In the 1920s, he dubbed catching equipment the tools of ignorance. But imagine a catcher without a face mask. We'd cringe every single time a pitch came. I would. Like, I don't want to see something violent. Or you ever seen a football game where the running back loses his helmet and they keep running? I'm like, lay down, cover your head, protect the melon. He's like, are you crazy? You see, we need this equipment, and this is the truth for us. We must be, be prepared for the battle that we really are in. Friends, we are in a battle, and we are to put on the armor of God. Now, I want to remind us that this passage isn't, isn't that we're to memorize each piece of armor and then methodically pray it on, but it's telling us to put on the characteristics and the virtues that are ours, that belong to us through our salvation in Jesus Christ. The passage we're in reminds us to put on Christ. We're to live a life that is consistent, to be empowered by the spiritual resources that belong to us. So this passage gives us hope and confidence. We're to be equipped with God's armor. And the last time we, we saw that we're to put on the belt of truth, and for the sake of time, we can't review that too much. But I would encourage you to go to the website and catch up this week if you can. In putting on the belt of truth, we remind ourselves that truth is in Jesus Christ. And we're to put on the truth of the gospel every single day. Preach to yourself the gospel. Preach to yourself the truth. And then live in that truth each and every moment. But today we see the next piece of armor. And that is the breastplate of righteousness, and we find that in chapter 6, verse 14. We saw last week, stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness. We're to put on righteousness, the breastplate of righteousness. For a Roman soldier, what did a breastplate cover? Covered the chest. Turn to Isaiah 59. And when it was put on the chest, what was that to protect from? Assault, right? Front, frontal assault with fists, weapons. But again, this armor 
It points back to the Messiah. It points back to Jesus. In Isaiah 59, I want to show you something. And we see a description of Christ. Isaiah 59, starting at 15, it's 15b, the second half. The Lord saw it, and it displeased him that there was no justice. He saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no one to intercede. Then his own arm brought him salvation and his righteousness upheld him. And look at verse 17. He, the Messiah to come, he put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak according to their deeds so he will repay wrath to his adversaries repayment to his enemies to the coastlands he will render repayment so they shall fear the name of the lord from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun for he will come like a rushing stream which the wind of the lord drives and a redeemer will come to zion to those in jacob who turn from transgression declares the lord you see, our Messiah, he puts on righteousness as a breastplate, and we too are called to put on the breastplate of righteousness. So the question then is, well, what is this righteousness that we're to put on? When Paul writes or he speaks about righteousness, what's he saying? What does Paul mean by this? Is he speaking of self-righteousness? Is he speaking of the imputed righteousness that is ours at salvation through Jesus Christ? Or is he talking about practical daily righteousness where a believer lives a holy life empowered by the righteousness we've been given? Let's answer those questions today. Let's find out what Paul is saying. The first then that will hit is self-righteousness. You know, and this is important. It's important to remind ourselves about self-righteousness and it's important for us to examine our hearts regarding self-righteousness because Paul is not talking about self-righteousness. I think you already guessed that, didn't you? Self-righteousness is always condemned in scriptures. Why? Because you have no righteousness of your own apart from Christ. Apart from Christ, you, me, we are not righteous. Yet, you know this, apart from biblical Christianity, all other religious systems are based upon what man needs to do. Other religious systems say, here, here's your list of duties. Here's what you need to do. Here's how you need to obey. Here's how much you need to tithe. Here's where you need to get married. Here's what rituals you need to follow. We follow Christ and Christ alone. We look at what Jesus has done, not what man can do, because man has no righteousness of their own. You see, the context of this passage is warfare, and Satan wants to take down as many people as he can with him. He wants to take people to hell. I think sometimes we lose the seriousness of that. I know I do. I think sometimes maybe growing up in church, we hear heaven, we hear hell, we're thankful for our salvation, and so hell sometimes gets kind of pushed away. But hell is real, and it is eternal. As much as people want to say it's not. 
Jesus said it's eternal, so it's eternal. By the way, if heaven, as we sang about today, is eternal life with Christ, why would not condemnation be eternal also? This is what the scriptures teach. Satan is defeated, but he's an angry, defeated enemy. It's kind of like when someone is leaving battle and they say, oh, it's fine, you can have the land back and we're just going to burn it down. Come back to destruction. Satan is a destructive enemy and he wants to take people down. And see, a major trap of Satan, and it's a trap that we, even as believers, can oftentimes fall into, is to convince people that they're fine and they're good. That they're just fine without Christ. The Pharisees in the New Testament, does Scripture speak very well of them? No. You know why? They thought they were good enough. They lifted themselves up as the pinnacle of righteousness. They were convinced that they were good and that they were righteous. But what did Jesus do? He came. And he said this. This angered them to the point that they wanted to put Jesus to death. In the Sermon on the Mount, the anger got rolling and it did not end till the cross. But he said this. Unless your righteousness, and he's speaking to the people, unless your righteousness, so this is your self-righteousness, exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. I'll read it again. Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, me, I'm not a really good listener, I have to admit. So if I was a scribe or a Pharisee hearing that, I'd be like, unless... Uh, your righteousness is like that of a scribe and a Pharisee. I'd be like, yep, see, he's saying I'm righteous. But then I'd have to go, wait, stop. What did he just say? If you want to enter the kingdom of heaven, look at the righteousness that we have. And it, wait, it says it has to exceed it. It has to exceed my righteousness to enter. Hey, I think Jesus just said my righteousness isn't enough. That was shocking news to them. Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees. Jesus just told the Pharisees, it's not enough. Exceeds. You have to do better than what the world said was the top notch. And then he said it. Be perfect as your heavenly father is also perfect. Well, how does this happen? It does not happen through self-righteousness. We have to know this. Luke 18, I want you to turn. We got a lot of scripture to turn to today. Hopefully we'll make it through. I want you to see this. There's a lot of scriptures I want you to see today. Luke 18. Look at verse 9. He also told this parable, Jesus, to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Boy, does self-righteousness bring pride. Do you see that right here? This is written to the ones who said, I'm so good, and they treat others with contempt. Friends, when we see the world, when we see those trapped in their sins, we are to have a heart of compassion. 
This is extra, not in my notes, but I'm just seeing this. Sometimes I think we see the world and we just kind of, we get kind of pharisaical. Oh, look at the mess they're in. By the grace of God, you're not in the same mess. Please get that in your understanding. God's grace is so great that we are thankful for what he has done because without the grace of God, we would be in a mess. But self-righteousness brings about the treating of others with contempt. And so Jesus was warning against this. He says this, two men went into the temple to pray. One religious Pharisee and the other, the enemy of the state, a tax collector. The Pharisee standing by himself prayed, thus God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. He's telling God how good he is. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. He's proud of his works. Look at the tax collector. But the tax collector standing far off would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but he just beat his breast saying, God be merciful to me a sinner. And look what Jesus said. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. Do you know what justified means? If you don't know the term, it means declared righteous. Our righteousness is in Christ and in Christ alone. It's not by the one who did the works. In fact, if you took that culture, you would say the religious man, the good man, went to hell. The evil man went to heaven. Why? Because the one who was the sinner, the tax collector, begged for mercy and he understood his place and where he stood before God. He is not righteous. Friends, we, apart from Christ, are not righteous. When you share the gospel, yes, it is good news. Yes, God does have a wonderful plan for us. But do not ever hesitate to bring this message You're dead in your sins. You need a savior. We call it salvation, and so we need to be saved from something. If you think you're good, you don't have need to be saved. When you recognize who you are, you awake to the need that I need a savior. What a gift from God. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Romans 3. Verse 10. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. So do you see the danger of self-righteousness? If you're relying on self-righteousness in this battle that we're in, you are not protected. You do not have the breastplate of righteousness because the breastplate of righteousness is not the breastplate of self-righteousness. Relying on your own righteousness would be as foolish as a catcher saying, hey, I'm protected. I have an Under Armour t-shirt on under my jersey. You guys know what Under Armour is, right? Protect this house. 
a police officer who goes out into the line of duty, Jeff, correct me if I'm wrong, is not a bulletproof vest now standard, standard issue? Why? It protects. A t-shirt, our clothing does not protect. We need the breastplate of God's righteousness. And we'll actually get to what that actually is. But it's not self. So then what is the righteousness? What is the breastplate of righteousness talking about? Paul is saying this. Putting on the breastplate of righteousness is putting the righteousness that we have been given from God through Christ into daily practice. So what is the breastplate of righteousness? It's holy living. It's holy living that is empowered by the righteousness that we have been given in Jesus Christ. Does that make sense? See, so many people, I think, say, well, I have imputed righteousness. When I came to salvation, when God called me into salvation, it says that we were given righteousness, that we were given the righteousness of Christ, that we stand justified. But then I think some people go, well, I'm good to go. And they almost become two people. I'm a Christian, I have righteousness, but I'm still going to live how I want to live. That's an error. You see, we are saved and empowered for righteous, holy living. And I think sometimes we lose this. I think sometimes holiness has kind of been pushed aside. We love grace, but grace empowers us to holiness, to be different. And so the breastplate of righteousness is living in this battle empowered by the righteousness of Christ so that we live holy lives. Romans 3, it moves on. Look at verse 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested, made known apart from the law. So, so many people said, okay, I'm made righteous by doing the law, by working. And Paul says something different. Although the law and prophets bear witness to it, look at the righteousness of God, verse 22, through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. The righteousness of God was manifested through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We share that verse a lot, don't we? All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But look at the next one. And the sinner is justified, declared righteous, by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. It's a free gift. We don't earn righteousness. We don't deserve righteousness. We don't work our way to righteousness. We don't make up the difference. It's all Christ and it's all been given to him or given to us through him. It says this, the righteousness of Christ is given to us. What a gift. And so this righteousness that is given to us empowers. Let's look at another passage that shows some great truths about righteousness. Turn to Philippians 3. You know, I don't know about you, but sometimes in the area of holiness and holy living... 
it sure is easy to just look at other people to kind of judge the standard, isn't it? We tend to be able to really notice other people's, I'm speaking for me, maybe you, by God's grace, the Holy Spirit has really empowered you and you don't struggle with this. And every week I feel like I'm just like, you're looking at Pastor Ron and saying, that guy's a mess. And I am. But it's so easy to drive down the street and you look at someone, they're dressed different. You can tell that they're obviously involved in sin. And we sit there and go, oh boy, I dodged that bullet. It's so easy to look at others and compare and say, we're fine. Here's the flip side. Sometimes we look at others in the opposite way and they say, whoa, they've got it made and I'll never reach it. Here's the key, rest in Christ. He is working in you. You really don't know, you see a whole lot on the outside. You see people, some people's sin struggles are there for everyone to see. And for their whole life, it's just obvious what they struggle with. But then there's others who look great and you will never see the wickedness of their heart because it's hidden. So what is the key? Examine yourself. See where you are at. See where your holiness is. We're called to be holy. And look at Philippians 3. See, so many people keep wanting to say, do this, do this, do this. God is happy. And Paul, he goes, I'm, I'm, that's it. I'm talking about this. I'm going to tell you that righteousness is through faith in Christ. It's not from yourself. And he uses very, very strong words in Philippians chapter 3. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Dogs, evildoers, mutilators. Now, we love our dogs, don't we? Because they're domestic and they love us and they jump on us at three in the morning and want to go out and want treats. And that happened to me this morning. And I looked, I go, what a cute dog. It didn't really bother me. If it was a kid, I'd be really upset. But my dog, I don't mind. <laughs> but go back. Or go to a culture where dogs roam free. Where they're not domesticated. Where they're diseased. Where rabies is around. And ask me if you say, oh, come here, Fifi. Give me a kiss. That doesn't happen. Dogs, I know this blows our mind, but there are cultures where they're kicked. They throw rocks at them. They say, get away from me. Why? There's danger. They're diseased. We don't understand this, but when Paul says, look out for the dogs, people in this culture are going, I know exactly, there's packs. Of, yep, I don't want to get attacked by a bunch of dogs. They bring destruction. Evildoers. Those who mutilate the flesh. There's people saying, hey, you need to follow the law in order to gain righteousness that counts in God's account. And Paul's saying no. He says, for we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. I don't know about you, but I still struggle with putting confidence in the flesh. It may be different. I'm not saying it's because I'm a great Jew, as Paul was saying here, but I'll say it because I'm a good Christian kid. 
I grew up in church. I know the Bible stories. I got my Awana verses down. I got the stars on the chart. I must be in. I know the answers. Don't put your confidence in that. Paul goes on and he lists the resume that at this time is spotless in terms of self-righteousness. And he even says it, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh. Now, some of us, you go, you know what? If I have to put confidence in my works, I'm totally dead. And you know it. You know what you've been saved from. Church kids, especially, I'm speaking as one who's been going to church since before I was born. Now 48 years old. Church kids tend to put confidence in their heritage and what they know. And this was what Paul was saying. I can put confidence in the flesh. If anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Verse 5, circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin. What he's saying is I'm an Israelite and I'm from the best tribe. A Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, remember, the pinnacle of self-righteousness was the Pharisee, unless your law exceeds that, is what Jesus said. So obviously there was some sort of self-righteousness in the Pharisee that people looked at. Paul's saying that's true. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, look at this, blameless. People couldn't look at Paul's life and say, oh, he's a terrible Pharisee. He's a terrible lawkeeper. No, people would say, look at Paul. He's doing it right. But look at verse 7. From one who was blameless in self-righteousness, he says this, but whatever gain I had, I counted it as loss for the sake of Christ. He goes, it counts for nothing. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. If I was one of those edgy young pastors, I would tell you what the word rubbish is. But I won't. I think people tend to do it for shock value. But rubbish, you don't like it. You don't like to step on it. You don't like it when your dog leaves it in places where you might be walking. Strong language. I count it as worthless in order that I may gain Christ. And look at this, and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, that comes from what I've done, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. You see, Philippians 3, it says that self-righteousness or self-confidence in, in works is worthless. So where do we need? We need the righteousness that comes by putting your faith in Jesus Christ in verses 7 through 9. But look at this. It's not this righteousness was not given to us just for the sake of stopping there. Verses 10 through 14. That what? The righteousness that from God that depends on faith 
for this purpose. Here's the purpose of this righteousness, that I may know him, that I may know Jesus. But not just that, and the power of his resurrection, and may share his sufferings, what? Becoming like him. Faith in Christ moves us to holiness, to becoming like Christ. You see, we grow in our walk with God. We don't just say, I'm declared righteous and stop there. Holiness, the holiness we've been given, the righteousness we've been given, empowers us to change and to have this tremendous journey of sanctification where we see victory in Jesus Christ over sin. Those of you who have been saved, think of where you were and where you are now. Is that by your own works? No. It's by the power that Christ gives us. So the purpose of this imputed righteousness is holiness. The purpose that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. And then look at verse 12. <coughs> and this is where we're, this, read this today. This is us. This is you. This is me. This is Paul. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect. But what do we do? We're in a battle, we're in spiritual warfare, we press on. You understand the idea of press? There's some force there. This is work. But it's work empowered by God. It's not just you doing the work. We press on to make it my own. Because Christ Jesus has made me his own. <clears throat> Imputed righteousness empowers us to practical righteousness. Remember Ephesians 2? We are his workmanship, created in Christ for what? Good works that God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. I'll turn back a couple pages to Ephesians. See where, we, see where we've been in this study? Ephesians 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be Holy and blameless before him. We have the righteousness of Christ. It's been given to us as a gift that we've received by faith. We have Christ's righteousness. It's unearned. We do not deserve it. So now we live lives of holiness. Look at what we've been given in Christ. We were dead in our sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. This is Ephesians 2. Among whom we all once lived 
and the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our sins, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus for this purpose, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. And the greatest verse in scripture, for by grace you have been saved. Through faith. And this is not your own doing. <clears throat> this is not your self-righteousness. This is not you making up the difference. This is all Christ. All him. It is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one would boast. And if it was up to our works, we would boast like crazy. Because we're proud of ourselves. Boast in Christ. It's him alone. We bring nothing, nothing, nothing to the table. Just our sin. That's all we bring. We put our faith in Christ and he says, your sin is no more. You are righteous in Christ. I give this to you. I give you the righteousness of Jesus Christ. That's what God says. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So this breastplate of righteousness, it's righteous living, it's holiness, and that's why Paul moves on. And again, we've talked about the, the outline of Ephesians. One, chapters 1, 2, and 3. Who we are in Christ. The resources we have in Christ. Our salvation in Christ. Our, the grace we have from God. Which then, chapter 4, verse 1. That's why Paul then says, because of all God has done for you, live this way now. Be different. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. Live a holy life. That's a paraphrase. Live like a Christian. Live like a follower of Christ. Because the next thing, humility. Is Christ humble? Yes. Gentleness. Is Christ gentle? Yes. Is he patient? Yes. Bearing with one another in love. Is he loving? Yes. Eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Chapter 4, verse 17. Live differently. Don't live like you used to live. You must no longer walk as the unsaved or as the Gentiles do. In the futility of their minds, they're darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of heart. And they're greedy to practice sin. That's not who we are. Don't live that way. Chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love. Live in love. Live your life in holiness. As Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, 
a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God, but sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. You know why it must not be named among us? Because we are to clothe ourselves in holiness. We are to clothe ourselves in the breastplate of righteousness. We're called the holiness and purity. You've been saved. I've been saved. We've been declared righteous for this purpose, to press on and to live holy lives. Are you miserable today? Check your holiness. By the power of the Holy Spirit who empowers you, let us be a people who kill our sin. You see, the breastplate of righteousness is righteous living. It's holiness. It's living a holy life. It's living a Christ-like life. You see, sin and unholiness, it brings pain. It brings defeat. You see, Paul is challenging us this because you know what? We can lose the battle. Did you know that? What happens when we sin? Are you effective? How many of you ever had a rough week? Really rough. And you just feel battered by sin and you said to yourself, again, maybe I'm just exposing myself here. I can't go to church. I can't be with all those other good people. I'm a mess. What does the enemy do with our sin? He loves to throw it in our face. Guess what? If you had a hard week in sin, run here on Sundays. Do not pass go. Get here. And then remind yourself of the gospel and sing with gusto. With gusto. <laughs> gusto? I don't know what that is. But sing and worship and remind yourselves of the Savior. You see, sin and unholiness, it brings sorrow, it brings destruction. Sin robs us of joy, but obedience brings joy. Don't hold on to sin. Don't treasure your sin. Confess it, repent, and you'll see your joy restored. Remember David after Bathsheba? Begging God in Psalm 51, create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence. And then it says this, restore unto me the joy of my salvation. If you're not joyful, you have sin. Seriously, I don't know any other way to put it. And I don't even want to come across harsh. But what robs us of our joy in Christ is our holding on to our sin. Self-righteousness robs us of joy in Christ because we start thinking we did something. Give the glory to God. If anything good happens, give glory to God. We have nothing. I've experienced a lack of joy because of sin. It's awful. It's not where we're supposed to be. At all. 
So we put on the breastplate of Christ's righteousness, which empowers us to holiness. Do you have problems and struggles? We all do. And so as a church, let's start examining our personal holiness. We allow a whole lot of the world into our lives. I do. It robs us of joy. It, it muddies our thinking. Are you struggling to serve God? Are you wounded in this battle? Are you on the sidelines? Examine your life. Are you in bondage to addictions and habitual sins? Run to the scriptures, run to Christ. Because what the word of God here is saying is you have power in Christ over your sin. 2 Peter 2.11, beloved, I urge you. What, Paul, what Peter here is saying is I beg you, I'm on my knees. As those who don't belong to the world, as sojourners and exiles, what is, what is Peter begging? Abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Do you want a damaged soul? Keep holding on to the junk. And it will rob you of joy. It will rob you of power. And you will be ineffective. Ah, but in Christ, we have victory. That's what it's saying. The breastplate of righteousness is our power for holiness. And I know I'm repeating myself, but we need to know this. Forget your self-works. Run to Christ. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. The scriptures say this, let us be holy sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God. Let us be a people who set our minds on the things above, not on the things of the earth. Look what Paul wrote to the church in Corinth in chapter 15. Verse 34, to the church, he said this, wake up from your drunken stupor. Now, they were not an obedient church. I don't want to hit that. But he says this, wake up from your drunken stupor as is right and do not go on sinning. Friends, do not go on sinning. We have power in Christ for holiness. Not our own power, but we have his unlimited resurrection power. The same power, that's what Paul prayed in Ephesians. Remember, I pray that you will know the power that you have. And it's the power that raised Christ from the dead. We are not powerless in Christ. By ourselves, completely, 100% powerless. But in Christ, oh, what a resource we have in Jesus. Put on the breastplate of righteousness Live a righteous and holy life empowered by the righteousness that we've been given through Jesus Christ. I don't know your heart. I know mine. Self-righteousness creeps in. It is easy, easy to rely and grade on a curve and look at your neighbor and just think everything's good. No, fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of your faith. He who began a good work in you will continue to complete it.
until the day of Christ Jesus. It is him, it is he who is at work within us for his will and his good pleasure. Run to the cross, run to Christ. It's his righteousness that empowers us to be righteous in our practice. Understand, there's a lot to go over here. Are we declared righteous in Christ? Absolutely. And that's what empowers us to practically, day in and day out, live righteous lives. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we thank you for our salvation. Thank you for Jesus, who by the cross did a great an awesome sacrifice for our sins. Father, we know, as your word says, we were dead in our sins, that we were not righteous, that we bring nothing but our sins to you. And we thank you that because of Jesus Christ, we are forgiven. Father, may that just guide everything we do in our lives, what we share with others, how we live, how we live with our spouses, how we parent our children. Father, may our eyes be fixed on you so that what we do is pleasing to you. Oh, Father, create in us clean hearts. Empower us to righteousness. We want to be pleasing to you as a people and as a church so that the world would see your greatness and your mercy and your grace. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.